If you uh, hang out at City Church long enough, you'll know that uh, each week uh, we do something called uh, the Prayer for the City. And uh, often what happens in that prayer for the city, and Mark did it perfectly without our planning it, uh, often what happens is we, uh, we pray for the government, we pray for uh, leaders, we pray for uh, those elected officials, not just in uh, our government as a nation, uh, but in our city as well, and we, we pray that they would um, lead us to a better day, that they would lead us into uh, a different chapter, especially um, in our city. Um, that they would lead us effectively into a better place and uh, bring about welfare. And what we're doing when we pray that is we're, we're expressing a deeper desire that I think is true of all of our hearts and goes beyond just praying for our city. Because I think in each and every one of us, there is a deeper desire for a king. Now, we don't always call them kings in our culture today, but these are people of authority who are above us. And we pray that they would usher in times of peace and welfare and equity, uh, of justice and of prosperity. And of course, we want all of that for us personally. Um, We want all of that for our city. We want it for our country and our world. And in many ways, that doesn't make us any different uh, than God's people in the Old Testament. And if you've been with us for the Advent series, you know that we have been looking at the desire for a king and the history of kingship of God's people. Uh, If you were with us two weeks ago, we looked at one of their kings named Saul, and we saw that he was uh, their first king and certainly an imperfect king. And what we saw about him was that more often he was driven by his fear when he should have been driven by his faith. Uh, Last week, we looked at King David, uh, who was considered to be the quintessential king in the history of God's people. And we remarked at uh, what a man of faith he was, a man after God's own heart. And we saw how his faith certainly had to carry him through many difficult circumstances in his life. But perhaps the most difficult challenge for his faith was when it had to carry him through his sin and being found out in the midst of his sin. And so what we discover is that every single king leaves us wanting. Every single king is flawed and imperfect. And we certainly see that in the life of the king that we're going to look at this morning. Because this morning we're going to look at King Solomon, who was uh, uh, one of the children of David and Bathsheba. He was the king who took over after David, his father, passed away. And we actually get to read about his story in two different books of the Bible, in 1 Kings and in 2 Corinthians. But this morning, our passage we're going to look at is from 1 Kings uh, chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 9. So you can follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screens uh, or in the bulletins. But here, God's Word, uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord... And the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, 
then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts as we encounter Your Word, we pray that they would be pleasing to You, that You would be honored and glorified in our midst, that You would speak directly to our hearts, speak directly to the greatest anxieties and pains and frustrations that we're feeling at this moment. Would You apply the gospel to the places that it most needs to be applied in our hearts. So visit us with your presence here this morning in a unique way, and we pray that we would changed as a, be changed as a result of it. It's in Christ's name, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Well, this year, uh, if you know me, uh, this year uh, I turned 40, and uh, that was a hard birthday for me. It was not uh, something I was really looking forward to. Um, uh, and you tend to think more about your life when you kind of reach milestone birthdays like this, uh, and that was certainly true of me. I remember uh, on that day, I thought back to, to younger Patrick, uh, to college Patrick, and I thought about kind of all the dreams and the desires and the pictures I had um, from where I would be when I turned 40. And uh, some, of course, came to be true. Others turned out very differently uh, than I expected. Hopefully, a lot has changed in me for the better uh, over those 20 years. But I certainly thought about that a lot this week, uh, because what's unique about the Solomon story is that he was visited by God really only twice in his entire life. Uh, The first time that he was visited by God was when he was 20 years old, just a young guy. And the second time that he was visited by God was when he turned 40 at a really important crossroads in his life. So this morning, what I want to do is just look at these two encounters that Solomon had with God, the first, of course, when he was 20 and the second when he was 40. And so the first encounter with Solomon is is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and and 1 Chronicles chapter 3. And in those stories, we find a 20-year-old Solomon who's very intimidated with something that life has presented him. The passage in 1 Kings tells us that Solomon very plainly loved the Lord, that his passion for, was for God, and he desired to carry on the same passion that he'd learned from his father David. And at 20 years old, his father David passes away, and after a little bit of controversy and, of course, a little bit of advocacy from his mother Bathsheba, Uh, Solomon is crowned king in the nation of Israel. 
And so he comes to this place called Gibeon, and he makes all sorts of sacrifices uh, to God at this point as his first role as king. And what the story tells us is that God uniquely comes to him at that moment, at that very important moment of his life. And God does something unique with Solomon that I think, as far as I can read, he's never done with anyone else in the Scriptures. He comes to Solomon and he says, Solomon, I will give you whatever you want. Whatever you desire, I will grant to you. Now, I don't know how long Solomon took to to kind of think about answering that question. Hopefully, he didn't rush into his answer. He took some time to really think about it. Uh, He didn't ask for more wishes, which is exactly what I would have done, right? Because that's the strategic thing to do. But instead, he requests that God would give him wisdom and understanding. And I've always thought that was such a great response from Solomon that really reveals what is going on in his heart. Because Solomon is still just a young man. He's 20 years old, and now he has to lead this incredibly great kingdom that he has inherited from his father, David. Not only does he have to lead the kingdom, but he has to live up to the reputation and leadership of his father, David. Those are incredibly big shoes to fill, and certainly 20-year-old Solomon had to be intimidated by the task that was given him. And so he simply asks God for help. Give me wisdom. Give me understanding. And of course, God is miraculously honored by Solomon's request. He is pleased that Solomon didn't ask for all the things that most people would ask for, things like riches um, and wealth and prosperity. And so what God does is he grants Solomon's request for wisdom and understanding And he throws everything else in, in the process, all the wealth and the wisdom and the fame God promises to grant to Solomon. And so for the next 20 years, Solomon has a very impressive resume. He accomplishes amazing things in the next 20 years of his life. He, of course, grows in all sorts of wealth and prosperity. In fact, 1 Chronicles 29 says that the Lord made Solomon great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. He was so wealthy and so prosperous that 2 Chronicles says this. It says that that gold and silver was so common in the land of Israel, it was as common as stones that were lying on the ground. So as a kid, I thought back to a show that was on TV called, um, what was it called? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I'm old enough to remember that show that boasted caviar wishes, or no, champagne wishes and caviar dreams, and Robin Leach doing all sorts of stories about the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Well, these lifestyles had nothing on Solomon. He was rich, he was prosperous, he was famous, and his fame spread throughout all of the ancient world. And because he had amassed a, a tremendous amount of wealth, he had the ability to spend that wealth wisely. And one of the things that he did, one of the immediate tasks that he did, was he desired to build a great temple for God to dwell in in the midst of the nation. 
You see, his father David, this is, had long been David's desire to build a temple, a dwelling place for God amongst his people, but it really wasn't in the cards for David. So the task fell to his son Solomon. And so the, the scriptures tell us for several years, Solomon went on this massive building project. And at the very end, he, he's constructed this incredible temple for the worship of God, and he amasses the entire nation outside of this temple. And he stands before the nation, and he blesses the people, and then he prays a prayer of dedication to God, that, that God would consecrate, that God would dedicate uh, this temple to his worship. And it's one of the, the more beautiful prayers in all of the Old Testament. And at the end of this prayer, uh, the Scriptures tell us uh, a cloud begins to descend on the temple, and a great fire after it descends on the temple to represent the presence of God amongst His people. Now, we're going to talk more about this a little bit later in the sermon, but the important thing to know is this was an incredibly substantial moment in the history of God's people. It would be talked about for generations upon generations, the moment in which the temple was completed and God's presence came to dwell in a unique way with this people. Solomon continues to build, and as the Scriptures tell us, after he finishes the temple, he says, well, I've got to build a nice palace for myself. And of course, he goes and he does that. I've always found it curious that he only spent about seven years on God's house and then he spends 13 years on his own palace. And I always thought that was pretty curious, but the Scriptures don't give any sort of commentary to it. But finally, what we see that happens in these 20 years is that just Solomon continues to grow in his fame, and his fame becomes worldwide. Uh, kings, queens, rulers from nations all around them come and visit Solomon, marveling at his majesty and the things that he has accomplished. No other kingdom, no other superpower ever tried to, to challenge Solomon in his power and in his rule. So at the end of the day, ultimately what happens is Solomon ushers in a golden age for God's people. This was when God's people were the top dogs in the international scene. Uh, this was the quintessential moment uh, in their history, the time in which they ruled in peace and prosperity and wealth. When you think about it, that is really remarkable because just generations before, this people group were a slave race. They were a slave race living under the thumb of the Egyptians. And now, just generations later, they have become the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world. And Solomon sits upon the throne in all of glory and wonder. That was a pretty impressive and productive 20 years. Solomon's resume is pretty impressive at this point. And so then you come to now God's second encounter with Solomon, after he's accomplished all of these things, after this incredible 20 years, God comes to Solomon a second time, and what we discover is it's at a point in which Solomon feels that he's reached a crossroads in his life. God comes to him again, and really he just offers. That's what our passage is this morning, uh, 1 Kings 9, 2 Chronicles 7. Really he just reiterates, he reminds Solomon 
of everything he had said to him in his first encounter. He says this to Solomon. He says, but if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commands and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them, and the house that I've consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. See, really what God is doing is He's just simply reminding Solomon of the terms of their first encounter, essentially saying to Solomon, if you do as I say, then you will prosper. But if you stray, if you wander, if you depart from my commandments, then there will certainly be consequences. So Solomon, obey the commands of the Lord and beware of worshiping false idols. And that last item, that warning about worshiping false idols, winds up becoming Solomon's eventual downfall because his worship of idols proves to be his downfall personally, but it also proves to be the downfall of the people in which he leads. Now, the seeds of this didn't happen overnight in Solomon's life. The seeds of this were laid very early. They started very early in his kingship. And if you read early in his story, one of the details it tells us from the very beginning that's easy to miss is this, that Solomon, as he was accruing power, took for himself a wife from Pharaoh's daughter. He decided to marry Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, it was probably more of a political alliance, and that was the point of it, rather than some interesting uh, romantic story from the Old Testament. But needless to say, he chose to marry Pharaoh's daughter despite the fact that it was expressly forbidden by God. You see, one of the commandments that God gives His people is that He wants them, especially the king, but all of them, He wants them to only marry within the nation, within that people group. And we look at that and we think, was this some sort of racial issue that was going on? And I don't think that's what it is at all. Instead, I think it was more of an issue of worship or related to worship. Because what the Lord was doing is He was warning the people about syncretism. And He knew that if God's people started to intermarry with all of the other nations around them, that the gods of those other nations would, tem- or would, would be tempted to worship, or they would be tempted to worship the gods of these other nations. And all you have to do is look at the first couple Ten Commandments to know that God's people were to worship Him, and they were to worship Him alone. They were to be singularly devoted to God When it came to their hearts and what they were supposed to worship, they were not allowed to have divided hearts that worshiped other things. They were to worship God and to worship Him alone. And this, of course, at the end of the day, becomes Solomon's downfall. Again, it wasn't something that happened overnight, but it was more like soil that eroded over time. And so by the end, by the time Solomon is 40 years old, the Scriptures tell us that he had amassed 700 wives 
and 300 concubines. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that Solomon loved many foreign wives and foreign women, and it tells us the consequence of that. His wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Because of that, Solomon later in his life goes on another building project. And in this building project, he turns his back entirely on the temple in which he had built early in his life to God, and instead he builds an elaborate temple to Chemosh, the god of the Moabite people, a false idol. And so from what we can tell, Solomon dies in his idolatry. And we kind of scratch our heads. How could someone who was so wise, who had been granted wisdom from God, how could he conduct himself so foolishly towards the end of his life? How could someone who loved the Lord and had such singular devotion to God, how could he become a spiritual adulterer, one who worships other idols? Well, lest we get caught up in judgment against Solomon, we have to be quick to recognize that the same temptation exists for you and I. And we might not go out and worship physical idols that, uh, that people bow down and worship, but we have to recognize that any time our hearts have become divided away from a singular focus and worship of God, we ourselves have committed spiritual adultery. We have committed spiritual idolatry in our own hearts. And friends, make no mistake, there is no shortage of idols in our culture that are all around us. There are the gods of sport, the gods of pleasure, the gods of wealth, the gods of achievement. They are all around us. They all cry out to us. They all want our hearts, and they all want our allegiance. They all want our singular devotion. And so you and I, we can wander away from God just as easily as Solomon did in his day. So, of course, the Solomon story, it leaves us wanting. Here is another king who is imperfect, another king who has serious flaws, another king who comes with a certain measure of disappointment. He is another king who leaves us wanting for a perfect king. And what we've seen all throughout the Advent season is the good news of the gospel that says this, that perfect king has come. That perfect king has come, born to Mary and Joseph. He, of course, was an unlikely king who was born in a very unlikely time to an unlikely people and certainly in unlikely circumstances. But he is the king that our hearts most long for. But he is also the king that Solomon even points us to because Jesus Christ himself was the Prince of Peace. Think about it this way. When Solomon was born to his parents, David and Bathsheba had the, had the, the privilege of naming their son. And so they name him Solomon. And Solomon in the Hebrew comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means welfare, it means prosperity, but at the end of the day, it means peace. Peace. 
And so David was a king of war. Conflict marked his entire kingdom, but when his son was born, he knew that his son would be a son of peace. That's why they named him Shalom. So what does Solomon become? He becomes the prince of peace. And those words have to remind us of a prophecy that becomes later in Isaiah chapter 9 that is familiar to all of us. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? The Prince of Peace. You see, Solomon ushered in a time where the people experienced peace from their physical enemies. But what the gospel tells us is that Jesus came to give us peace from our spiritual enemies. See, one of the things the gospel tells us is that in our sin, we had become enemies of God himself, that our sin uh, brought about a conflict between us and God. It estranged us from him. It broke our right relationship with him, and our rebellion made us his enemies. And so what did Jesus do? He came to restore the relationship. He came to restore God's people to a right relationship with him. He did it by bringing forgiveness because he is the ultimate prince of peace that our hearts most need and our hearts most long for. But there's something else that the Solomon story, I think, points us powerfully to Christmas. And it points us powerfully to a God who dwells amongst his people. One of the most remarkable moments in Solomon's life is, is, is as he's about to dedicate the temple and all the people have amassed and everyone is there and Solomon speaks almost incredulously in his own heart. He speaks almost disbelieving what he is about to see and he says this, but will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And so what it reminds us is that it is by no accident that the Prince of Peace got to oversee the building of the temple, this place where God dwelt with his people. And later on, you've got to go back and read Second Chronicles because it talks about the centrality of this temple for God's people. In effect, God says to the people, if you rebel and sin, and you will, you will rebel, you will sin, you will make mistakes, you will be prone to idolatry, but if you do those things, then just look to the temple and you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be provided for. It goes on to say, if you experience famine and hardship, then simply look to the temple and you will be forgiven and you will be provided for. If you are exiled, if you are conquered, 
If you are a foreigner living in the midst of God's people and you have want, you have desire, you have need, then all you must do is look to the temple and you will experience forgiveness and you will be provided for. In effect, whatever circumstance you might face, then just look to the temple, the place where God dwells, and you will be forgiven, you will be provided for, and you will be saved. And of course, later on, we read in John chapter 2, as Jesus is walking around in the vestiges of this ancient temple, he says words that are cryptic in the moment. He says, this temple will be destroyed and then raised up three days later. And everybody else around him is scratching their heads, wondering what Jesus is saying. But what does the gospel writer John tells us? Jesus was talking about himself. He was talking about his own body, the temple. And he's reminding everyone there that Jesus is the temple that we've been longing for. He was the temple that Solomon pointed to. He is the place where God dwells amongst his people. And it's by no accident that during Christmas season we say what? We call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is God come to dwell with his people. Whatever circumstance may challenge you, whether it's your sin or hardship or difficulty, simply look to that temple and you will be forgiven, provided for, and saved. And so, friends, if you have lived in opposition to God, it doesn't have to remain that way. Simply look to the ultimate Prince of Peace in faith and you will be forgiven and restored. But also know that in whatever circumstance you may face, whatever sin you may be oppressed by, then look to Jesus, Emmanuel, the place where God dwells with his people. Let's pray.